0: Dope Discussions Podcast. Dope Discussions. Gay to Eric woke discussions. Mm-hmm. Mob ties, how they rock and think they both was cousins. Gifting you with their words so you might know you something. Just go and look for them. Lie. They we do it every Sunday.
1: Every
0: Sunday. And we gon' gonna bring you that dope. Yeah, we gonna bring you that dope. It dope. It dope. It's gay to baby. State to state, baby, coast to coast, like the fire, baby, spark to jokes. And we gon' bring you that dough. Don't talk, talk with Erica, man. Talk with G, and all you gotta do is talk with me. And we gon' bring you that dough. And we gon' bring you that dough. And we gon'
2: Hello, Dope Discussion listeners. Welcome back to another exciting episode. This is your girl, Erica, and I have my co-host here, Mr. Gator Live. What's going
0: on, everybody? And are y'all doing this
2: evening? <laughs> we coming to y'all on another awesome Sunday evening, and I have a special surprise for y'all. got a special guest for y'all. I am excited and honored to have this gentleman on the show this evening, Mr. Kevin D. Hoffman. Mr. Kevin D. Hoffman, he is an accomplished writer and public speaker who has a passion for adoption and especially for transracial adoption. He enjoys sharing his experiences as a biracial transracial adoptee to help other adoptive families. His book, Growing Up Black, Growing Up Black in White, has helped many to see what life was like from the viewpoint of the adoptee, appearing all over the United States, speaking to parents and professionals. His perspective and lighthearted yet contemplative view is sought after by many. Kevin has been interviewed by NPR and Nightline ABC, and is quickly becoming a trusted voice in the adoption of arena. And I am so excited and honored to have him here. So I'm going to give Kevin a chance to, you know, after that introduction, to go ahead and give y'all a little bit more detail about himself. And um, we're going to kick it off from there. So welcome, Kevin.
3: Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'll give you the 30 second (laughs) version. (laughs) So I was born Two weeks after the riots in Detroit. So in 1967, August, 1967. Wow. Um, I am the result of an affair between my white mother and black father. They worked together in one of the plants in the Detroit area, happily married just to two different people. And so for obvious reasons, my white mother's white husband <laughs> suggested she give me up for adoption. She He actually demanded that she me up for adoption. So it was actually my mother's job to transport me from the hospital to my first and only foster home. Stayed in that foster home for three months with my foster mom, Mrs. Curry, which is on Detroit's west side, and then was adopted by a white minister, his wife, and they have three biological children. So I'm the youngest of those four. Uh, So interesting time to grow up in Southeast Michigan and Detroit, this biracial kid born from an affair between a white man, black woman, into a city that's literally was still smoking when I came out. Um, and it had to do with the fact that the races just couldn't get along and the black people were just sick and tired of the oppressive treatment that they had gotten from the majority white police force. Right. So that's the environment that I was born into.
2: I, man, look, I was so um fascinated reading some of your story i didn't i'm I'm gonna get the book and read the full book, but some of the snippets that I read, I was like, you know, I started to get chills um over my body reading the story um about your parents and all the stuff they had to go through to even adopt you and bring you into that community. And all of the adversity that they had to face. So I definitely applaud them. And I think they are awesome people, you know, for taking you in and raising
3: you. Yeah. When I was 11 months old, we lived in Dearborn, which is a suburb of Detroit, very white suburb of Detroit. Um, And when I was 11 months old, we woke up to a cross burning, burning on our front yard. (sighs) Uh, So and that was People are shocked when I say that, but that was fifty-two years ago. So that's recent history that people yeah that ain't learning long crosses. ago. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I was born into. And not only did that community object to me being a part of it, but my father was a Lutheran minister. He was associate pastor at the church in Dearborn, and uh, yeah, the pa- the church and my dad's boss, the head pastor, objected hmm. to me being part of that congregation.
2: Wow. So y'all had to go to a different church?
3: So eventually they tried to fire my father. That didn't work. Fortunately, the Bishop of Southeast Michigan stood up for us and really saved our job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we still lived. Three years after they burned the cross in the yard, we still lived in Dearborn. And fortunately for me, uh, my parents understood I needed to be around people that looked like me. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Detroit. And where we lived, that first neighborhood we lived, I was surrounded by black kids. So mm-hmm. I hung, so from age three to 18, I always had you know black friends. Um, the schools that I went to were like 95, 98 percent black, um, from grade school to high school. Mm-hmm. So I had this unusual way, <laughs> this unusual upbringing of being in a white household, but always having connection to my culture, which most, transracial adoptees you know which are usually kids of color adopted by a white family right they don't get that they they're usually in white families white environments white churches white schools and have very little connection with their culture
2: right i thought i thought it was real interesting that like the first the first half of your life you had to live an environment where you were the minority. And then when your parents moved you to that community, they became the minority.
3: Yeah. Yeah. All for you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they, in decades ahead of their time understood they couldn't give me or teach me what they didn't know. They didn't know black culture. And so they did the next best thing, which was just put me in that environment. So anytime I need, I got in touch with bi-culture, my mom could just simply say, go out and play. (laughs) Uh, Which was huge. I mean, that was like, I do a lot of training with white parents and the large majority don't want to make that kind of (laughs) sacrifice.
2: I I bet not. I know they don't.
3: (laughs) Which is a shame because I'm so thankful that they did that because I am now comfortable in the black community and the white community and I've counseled a lot of kids that grew up like me, black kids and white families, and they didn't have that connection. So they're kind of caught in between where, you know, both communities won't accept them as part of them.
2: Right. And so uh, what period of like what ages, what period of your life did you experience that where you felt not quite part of the black community or not quite part of the white community? How did you
3: deal with it? The fortunate thing was, ever since I can remember, I was always around black kids. Mm-hmm. And so th- it was a struggle to, my biggest fear growing up in grade school was, and even through high school was, these black kids are going to say I'm a fraud. Mm. So man, I would, I used to say it's, and I no longer believe it's to be true, but I used to say, I gained, I learned about black culture through osmosis. I just learned it from the kids around me. Mm-hmm. But that was lazy thinking. That didn't happen. I spent a lot of time and energy studying my black friends so that I could be a part of that group. Because I knew the white community wasn't going to just be like, oh, yeah, he's white. Come on in. Right, right. And Detroit was so segregated and actually still is today Hmm. that I knew for social survival, I had to cling to the only community that was going to accept me. (laughs) Right. Yes, yes. Yes. I cling to the black community.
2: Yeah, the, you got one drop of black blood in you, exactly. you are black. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, that's the thing. You know, I, yeah. I I joke and say, Man, it's so tempting sometimes, you know, like when I get pulled over by the police to be like, No, 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 wait, I got one parrot
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I will put you over there. Pull it out when you need
1: <know>, it. <laughs> you know?
3: But I will say I'm fortunate that I'm light skinned uh-huh. and I'm only five four, so I'm small. Right. I didn't get half the treatment that a lot of my like I have a good friend who's, you know, dark skin and six foot. His life experience is totally different than mine. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, he's seen as the dangerous one where and that works well for me when I go speak because I speak a lot of times to largely majority white audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And they seem to be able to hear me for whatever reason. I think it's twofold. It's one. The moment I tell him I was raised in a white household, that makes a lot of people go, "Ooh, okay. <laughs> and then the other thing is, yeah, I'm light-skinned and small, and so I don't appear as intimidating as some uh-huh. people might. Right, right, right.
2: All right. Gator, you got any questions for
0: Kevin? So how was it being now? I know you see it from your perspective, but did did any of your black friends, when you were coming up, share their perspective on, you know, you being their friend? Like, okay, well, you know, he's growing up with a white family or, you know, he's light skinned. I don't know. I don't know about this guy. You know, how was the relationship with those black friends growing up? You know,
3: so I was so fortunate that the Detroit public schools were so horrible that that was never an option for us. So we went to small private schools. So I went to a Lutheran grade school, which pr- probably had three or 400 kids in it, K through eight. And then I went to a, a Catholic high school. Um, and right after the riots, what happened in Detroit was the white people were just leaving the city in droves. So Detroit became, especially the schools that we were in, became majority black really quick. Um, and so, yeah, when I was writing a book, I went to my friends and I'm like, man, what was that like? You know, as me as your friend. And yeah, and a, a good friend of mine said, yeah, I was kind of nervous coming over your house for a couple because I didn't know how your parents were going to treat me. Uh-huh. Um, but once they got to know my parents, they were cool. Uh, there wasn't I so my mom's mom had a really hard time with the fact that her white daughter was bringing this child of color into the family. Yeah. I really pretty much throughout it. her whole life. She struggled, man. She struggled with the fact that she had a child of color in her family hmm. um, and she never said anything horrible, but you could just tell she was uncomfortable. And so I asked my friends, I said, that's my grandmother. I knew who she was. She wasn't very, she just wasn't that grandmother that you'd go sit down with and she'd hug you. She just wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I was curious to see what my black friends, because I think this is how my grandmother kind of ha- put it in her head to accept me. Because I was light skinned, I think, and small and all that had to do with it oh. in her head, she compartmentalized it and said, well, he's not really black. But then I had <laughs> friends mm-hmm. that she would consider really black and I wish I would have paid attention how she was around them because I'm sure she was very uncomfortable and so I asked a friend of mine that I went to high school with I said so what do you think of my grandparents and he said your grandfather was cool cool dude your grandmother mm -mm." something about her (laughs) that wasn't comfortable
2: wow wow Yeah. and and the vast majority um, of the of you know society is that way like we compartmentalize black people like this this type of black person is okay. You know, if they're educated, you know, they have a job, they're raising their kids, but this type of black person, we don't want to deal with this one, you know, or this kind. And so, and they, in their mind, they don't think that they're racist because, you know, the, 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 the the saying their uh their cliche saying is I have black friends.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't be prejudiced. I have a black friend. Yes, so, right. you just you just convinced me you are <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, normally when you hear that, that's the that's yeah. the the that's the dog yeah. whistle right there. Exactly. You know right. what? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. you
0: might be. Yeah. Well, I gotta watch. I gotta watch
3: yeah Right. <laughs> I can't be prejudiced. My best friend's black. Right,
2: right. That's their go-to scene. (laughs) I
3: get that a lot when I go train, whether it's foster parents or I do a lot of work with K through 12 schools and universities and diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And because you're supposed to be the, the subject matter expert when they bring you in, there's something about it that anywhere I go to train, I'll get cornered by a parent. And I got to hear, I tell my wife this, I got to hear their racial resume, which is they want to explain to me why they're not prejudiced or why they're not racist.
0: (laughs) My skin, my... My cousin dated a white girl alone. Yeah, yeah. A
3: girl. I that all the time. My grandson is biracial. Right, yeah, right. I get that a lot. Right. You didn't, really, you didn't
2: have anything to do with that decision. I mean, right.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You had. Right. Exactly. Right.
0: Now, you right. say you're a subject matter expert, and people call you in to speak at a lot of these engagements and everything. How did you get into you know, wanting to share your story uh, with other people that may be going through the same scenarios that you went through,
3: and that was probably the biggest mistake I've made business wise. <laughs> which was initially I wrote the book ten years ago, mm. and my my wife told warned me against <laughs> this, and man, ten year mistake. Um, <laughs> I was so focused on families like ours. So I was going right. after the adoption community, but unfortunately, usually you're talking to agencies that are not profit, that don't have a lot of money, right. mm-hmm. big mistake. And I didn't understand because it's sometimes when it's your story, it's not as big, like right. you don't understand right. the right. impact of your own story. Right. And after, yeah, probably seven, eight years, I started to really discover every time I told the story, people would draw back and just be so shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, and I did, when I wrote the book, one of the things I did when I wrote the book was I wanted to talk about race in a way that anyone who read the book could understand what it was like as a child of color growing up in this country and how I interpreted things. And the biggest hurdle was you've got to talk about it in a way that'll make people want to continue to read and not put the book down. Right, right. and the big mistake I made was not seeing that this story is so much more than adoption and really speaks to race, identity, culture. Um, and so now I'm going after a much larger audience, right. which I should have done a while ago. <laughs> um, so that's how I got into it. I just slowly started getting into grade schools, and then we then I moved to universities. And now the big push has been getting to large organizations.
2: Yeah. Right. Well, <clears throat> I can say that you did accomplish that goal with the way the book is written, because when I when I read the first few paragraphs, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to buy this book. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just sucked me into the story. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to get the book. Um, But I did want to ask you, what is what's the percentage of families like white families who adopt, um, you know, Children of other races.
3: So it's interesting that if you look at the child welfare system today, and the, that system is so broken. I worked in the child welfare system for about a year and got so frustrated with it, I just quit. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, we don't have enough families of color fostering and adopting to get all the children of color out of the system. Um, okay. Okay. And that has to do a lot with our community is disproportionately targeted. They'll go into our community and take a child away because they feel they're neglected, especially in poorer communities. Mm-hmm. But you've got the same behavior in white, richer communities, that, mm-hmm. but they don't do it there. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, so there's this myth that black people don't adopt. And anytime someone tells me that, I tell them two things. The first thing is you can't have the same agency handling adoption. It can't be the same agency that's coming into our community and taking kids. Well, that yeah. just doesn't even make sense. Like right. I'm not going to trust you then and, and want to adopt through you. If I just saw you take my neighbor's child. Right, Exactly. Uh, so I wow. think that's it. And then the other thing I tell people is black people do adopt much much more than is recorded. Mm-hmm. We just take in family members, and there's no paperwork to it. Very exactly. True. We Very don't true. do it. Yeah. But we don't go through the system exactly. to do it. Yeah. We just do it. Yeah, I have right. so many friends that were raised by their grandmother or an aunt, right? And that's the same. It's we in the adoption community. We call it kinship adoption. It's the same right. thing. We just didn't do the paperwork, right. and, and exactly. because. We didn't do the paperwork because we didn't want you in our business. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah. In, um, monitoring and and asking all these personal questions and getting all in the who's living in this house and who, you know, does this and I this don't and trust that. what
3: you're going to do with that information.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So technical. maybe they have to get a little better with being more, um, more family friendly and making people trust them. And um, for for black people to want to even get involved with
3: it. Yeah. And make more of a commitment not to take kids out of people's homes. We should be better, more committed at, okay. this family's having trouble. What can we do to keep them one family? Mm -hmm. And so often it's these are not good parents. Let's take them away. And we've got to do a better job of supporting the parents. so They can be better parents and that child can stay with their family.
2: So have you found that sometimes when a when a child is taken from a home and placed in another home, they're placed in a worse, worse situation?
3: Yeah, yeah the whole system. <laughs> yes. Um, and when I was in the in the system, that was the big thing. Uh, I hate it when we would move kids from one foster home to another. Mm-hmm. Because I just felt like every time you move that child, you are scarring them. Mm -hmm. and how about we limit the amount of scarring that we do to kids Um, but it just seemed like the easy fix you know if something went wrong in a foster home the first thing they would do is just go and rip the kid out of the home Mm -hmm. and that doesn't do a whole lot to convince the kids that this is a stable system
2: exactly that's that's where you find them a lot of them uh, take their chances on their own and just run away and live on the streets yeah that's crazy Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Well, I had, let me see. I read, I read the excerpt that you described how, you know, after you were, when you were writing the book and you thought back to a point in your childhood, when you kind of felt different from your brothers and sisters and you recalled an incident where your grandfather was playing yeah. Um with the other kids in the park mm-hmm. throwing leaves and you felt yeah. like you were just on the sideline watching it?
3: Yeah. Uh when I wrote the book, I got the chance of interviewing my adoptive parents and then my mom's mom, so my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um and at that time she was in a she was in assisted living. She was still fully functional and she was fine. Um and yeah, I, I remember interviewing her and then I was talking to my mom and my mom asked me, she said, do you think your grandmother treated you any differently than your brothers and sisters, your white brothers and sisters?
0: And Mm -hmm. initially
3: I said no. But then Mm -hmm. I remember driving home from that interview and that picture that you just described came to me very vividly of me sitting in the park, watching my brothers roll around in the leaves with my grandfather. And kind of looking at that from a distance mm-hmm. and going, man, they have a relationship with my grandmother and grandfather that I don't have. And the horrible thing was, I swallowed that and walked away from that thinking, there's something broken in me as to why they don't like me as much as they like my brothers and sister. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was tough. Um, yeah. To come to that realization, <laughs> when my grandmother was still alive. The wow. good news, the the actually the happy ending to that story is, and this sounds kind of morbid, but when my grandmother was dying, I remember going and I, towards the end of her life, I didn't like going to see her, because she was very critical. Mm-hmm. So I would go there, and she would every time I saw her, the first thing out of her mouth was, "Boy, you look fat," or "Boy, you've gained weight." Wow. And I was like, you know what? I could do without this. <laughs> <laughs> I could save myself this hour and drive.
1: <laughs> and that takes a hit. <laughs> um,
3: but the last time I saw her alive, I was at the I was standing at the end of her bed and she's in and out of consciousness. And she wakes up and my wife is there, my two kids are there, my mom and dad are there. And she just looks at me and very calmly says. Wow, you look okay. Mm. And being a man, we don't always get things right away. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that went over my head. <laughs> and then on the ride home, my wife said, Did you really get what she was saying? Right. And it was and it took her pretty much most of her life to come to the conclusion that this kid was okay. And then I she was okay with having this child of color in her family. Mm. Wow, she came and to so, peace with it. Yeah, and, probably, and then was that was probably her enough. most
2: profound compliment yeah. she could have ever given yeah. yes. yes. in, yes. yeah. right. in her way.
3: Yeah. Right. Yes. Because she wasn't. Yeah. You weren't getting a whole lot of compliments out of her to begin. With. <laughs> right. Um, so she came to that conclusion and that was a powerful conclusion because then it released me to go and be better and more um, because I was like, oh, OK yeah i'm not that bad you know right
2: (laughs) ain't that's weird how sometimes and people in our in our lives don't even realize how much effect and power that they see us really has on us
3: yeah Yeah. exactly
2: yeah yeah that's that's awesome though i'm glad she was able to give you that
0: though yeah right Now you mentioned your siblings and the interaction. How is your interaction now with them? This is, do they look at, you know, what you experienced back then and say, "Oh, that was profound." You know, I didn't realize I was going. You know, (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. in such a a a controversial, right, 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 a controversial or different type of upbringing. Like, were they aware that it was different, basically, when you were there?
3: Yes. So I have two brothers and a sister. I am close. My father passed away close to my mother and sister. My brothers are kind of estranged from the family. Um, Mm. they talk to my mom, my sister. I, we don't really talk. And since we don't talk, I kind of got a guess as to why that is. And I think it's a pretty good guess, but, and I've had this conversation with my mom, um, and she told me, she said, I think they thought, so understand there are these white kids that are growing up in Detroit, which is a predominantly black city. And then all the grade school, the grade school and high school that we went to, they are the minority. So they're one of, you know, a few white kids. And I'm talking, yeah. I looked back, there weren't a whole lot of white kids for them to hang out with. Wow. So they didn't have a whole lot of friends. They were cool with the black kids. Like I remember When I started this whole process, I went to my black friends and I'm like, "So, what did you think of my brothers?" And they were like, "Oh yeah, they were the cool white dudes." Mm -hmm. Um, And I think (laughs) with my black friends, they had they got some street cred because they (laughs) were living with the black. (laughs) Right. They were, and here's something interesting about race, which is what I found as being part of the black community is if you're a white person and can come into our community and appear comfortable, Mm -hmm. you're good. (laughs) <laughs> yes, right. And my brothers could do that. Well, good. Uh, but unfortunately, I think they they felt that maybe they were forced to live a life that they didn't want to live. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a lot of resentment there. Uh, and unfortunately, our relationship is probably, you know, it it took it's we that's what cost us. It was the uh-huh. cost we had to pay. Wow. Um, I talked to my mom. She talks about it a lot, That there's a lot of regret there. Um, Wow. But it was just so tough because Detroit was such a segregated city and still is that, I mean, we lived in that black neighborhood. Then my father gets a promotion when I'm eight years old and we moved to a white neighborhood still in Detroit. So now I'm the minority and they're having a ball, (laughs) But but I'm being treated horribly by some of the kids in that neighborhood. Wow. And my mom always said, man, we just couldn't find a place where everyone would be comfortable. Well, it
2: kind of sounds like they got to experience what most black people get to experience their whole life.
3: Right. Right. And they didn't like it. Yeah.
2: So that should make them be more sympathetic toward black people when they when they kind of had to experience it themselves.
3: Yes. Yes. And so and I've had that conversation with my sister and my sister has said, I'm thankful for the way I grew up because I got to see how others are treated. Mm -hmm. Um, And that made a that made a huge difference to her because she grew up, married a black man and she has a biracial daughter. Wow. Wow. So she kind of she got into that game, understanding that her daughter was going to be treated differently.
0: Right, aware of what, would, exactly. what the consequences could be yep. being in the relationship that she was in. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah.
2: I'm so fascinated by your mom and dad, like, because knowing that your mom grew up with a, a mom who was very prejudiced, mm-hmm. and then she does that, I mean, where does she get that courage from? Because she knew that, you know, her family was not going to be on board
3: with it yeah and that's the so here's how it all rolled out when my mother so my mother father had three kids um her my mother's last pregnancy was really tough on her physically they always wanted to have four kids so they chose to adopt the last child um because she was physically able to have children they could only qualify what was considered hard to place kids Ah. And so children of color, biracial children, and actually in some areas today, we're still considered hard to place. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And then you have medically fragile children, which are hard to place. They were presented with two girls that weren't going to live much longer. Mm. um, And they said no to them. And then, you know, the director was like, hey, would you take a child of color? And they were like, sure, why not? Not ah. really thinking about it. <laughs> right, right. I see that a lot with families. When families, you know, fill out the paperwork to adopt, there's certain things that they have to check off. And so they will be asked, would you be willing to adopt a child of color? And you check off the box. And a lot of families do that with really not thinking of how that's going to impact them. And I think my parents understood it a little, but didn't didn't think well, yeah, this is going to cause someone to burn a cross in our yard.
0: Shoot. I don't think it is. It, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so bad, and it's like, okay, yeah. they're not thinking yeah. about, oh, well, yeah. what happens if, or what happens if? Yeah. They're like, you know, I just want another child, and I want you know, to be able to raise yeah. this child, I want to be able to, yeah. you know, give this child, but not thinking that, you know, the fact that this child is a child of color may actually have consequences further down the line that you know, can impact not just that child, but everyone in the family. I'm pretty sure the brothers and sisters were a little myth or a little afraid
3: when they saw a yeah. cross burning, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. on the yard. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you got to understand too that was in the summer of '68, which wasn't too long after uh, Martin Luther King was killed. Bobby Kennedy was killed that year. Wow. So that was a real fear that someone in our household could have ended up dead.
1: Right. And that wouldn't have been
3: too surprising, you know, thinking about all that was going on at that time.
2: And the way you described it in the book, I felt like I was there. Like I could feel the fire burning when she went downstairs and she got closer. Like, wow. yeah, It was real, real, real good book. Thank you. (laughs) Gator, you got any more questions?
0: Well, no, actually, I'm just I'm just still like I said, just just listening to, you know, thinking about and putting myself in that position, you know, mm-hmm. especially like you just mentioned 1968, you know, literally months after, you know, King was assassinated, you're sitting there and you're literally looking at a cross burning in your yard and, you know, just like, like I said, I had to ask how your siblings took it because you know, did that do you think that bred any resentment towards you from them? Like, oh, this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't yes. for him. You
3: know? Yes, I think I think they kind of looked at it like, Man, if we had less my mom always said they would have preferred to live in a white neighborhood, go to the rich white private schools. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as a kid, you're thinking, man, that probably could have been possible if we had one less kid in the family. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, they thought, man, you've made a lot of concessions for this kid. You've moved us all into a neighborhood for him. You've put us in schools for him. Um, And so that's one thing I warn about when I train families like ours is avoid the temptation of creating invisible children. I think my brothers felt invisible. I think they felt that... Yeah, everything's being wow. done for Kevin. Yeah. And, and and the way we looked at the transracial adoption back in the 60s was different from today. I think my parents went into it thinking, we're this white family who just happened to have adopted a child of color. Right. Mm-hmm. And I tell parents today, no, you've got to go into it understanding you are now this multicultural family. Mm-hmm. And that means selling celebrating everybody's culture. Right. Uh, The temptation when you have, you know, a special needs adoption Mm -hmm. um, is that you put so much attention on the child that has special needs. Um,
2: You neglect the
3: rest. This will make some cringe, but I do consider transracial adoption a special needs adoption because these children have special needs. You can't. I think the assumption I see a lot is it will just organically fall into place. And everybody will love this child because I love him, and that's not right. True. Color does wow. matter.
0: It does definitely. Yeah. Does. Do you think they maybe felt that way just because of the strength of their faith? Because I mean, your father was a minister, and maybe you know, just you know, I was always taught that just because you see things one way doesn't mean the world's going to see things the same way. So them adopting you, saying, "Oh, you know." Just like I said, the strength of their faith being okay, well, you know, I don't see his color, I don't see any of that. Do you think that might have been why they were so, you know, accepting and maybe a little naive to what may have, you know, may
3: happen later down the line? Yes, I my parents get a buy because there weren't that many families like ours before us, right. Mm-hmm. I would say we were probably the second wave when it comes to transracial adoption. There was a wave in the early 60s. Um, And then there was a huge push from the Christian community Mm. in the late 60s to transracially adopt. So that's when it really started. Uh, The interesting thing is before I came along, my mother and father were very active in the community protesting racial inequality. Wow. So they understood it on a level that most wouldn't. Um, okay. And here's a great story that proves that. When I was in high school, I was, you know, hanging out with my black friends and I was a part of this rap group. And, <laughs> and that was back when oh, wow. like, gangster rap was just coming out. Yeah. Oh, you can't so, say that. We
0: got to get you to spit some bars in a little bit. So No, no, you can't. There's a reason why I got kicked out of the group. <laughs>
3: eventually, <laughs> I got kicked out of the group because I was killing their street cred. <laughs> <laughs> so I can laugh about it now. But, <laughs> but it hurt That, that, was, you that was a common that. thing for me with my black friends. Man, I just wanted to be a part of that black community, a part of my black friends. But every now and then I would get well, you sound proper, or you talk proper, <laughs> which is just code for you sound white, right. right? Yeah, that doesn't play well in the in the rap game. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so we were. This is in high school. We're all at my dining room table writing these raps and then saying them back and forth to each other.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And this again was just at the dawning of gangster rap. So. <laughs> All the raps we were <laughs> were saying back and forth to each other were all anti-white, anti-establishment, down with the man, all that stuff. <laughs> so we're saying this back and forth, in <laughs> my mom's in the kitchen. And so man, flash, flashback like 30 years after that, I'm on a panel with my mother, and we're in front of a large group that has read the book. And I talk about that story in the book. And one of these women knew my mom. And so they're all like, Judy, that's my mom's name. Uh, So tell us about this rap group. What did you think about (laughs) some of the things that they were saying? And me and my mom never talked about that. So when they asked the question, I'm sitting next to my mom on the stage and I'm leaning in because I want to hear what she's got to say. (laughs) And what she said blew my mind. And she said, typically, she starts off like any mother. Well, I wish they would have cleaned up the language a little. (laughs) Right. Yeah, But then she said they were angry and they had every right to be angry. Oh, wow.
0: Wow.
3: And I was like, wow. And on top of that, again, I'm I'm in my teens just trying to figure out who I am and this whole racial identity thing. My favorite shirt that I used to wear was this black T-shirt that had the outline of Africa on the front Mm. and on the back on the back it said it's a black thing you wouldn't understand I think yeah (laughs) and that was the time where we had the medallions too I had this medallion around my neck in the shape of Africa and then on the back it said it's and like how could you not be offended by that if you're a white person in my house
2: (laughs) you was the light-skinned Spike Lee you know yeah
3: exactly yeah exactly (laughs) And so, I was, I just, I give my mother so much credit for just allowing me to try and figure out who I was. Wow. Right. I mean, she gave at her expense, too. Yeah. She sounded like an awesome woman.
0: Yeah. That's yeah.
3: A, and then there was a powerful statement,
0: too. You know, it's like I yeah. understand their anger. You know, and they had every right to be.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. And you brought up Spike Lee. I think we were fortunate in the 80s. That we had Spike Lee. We had John Singleton. Mm -hmm. We had Public Enemy. We had all these people. That's why they were so endearing to us is because they were saying what we were feeling. Right. Exactly. So my concern now is I don't... You got Nipsey Russell, um, but I don't see the leaders today that we saw back then.
2: No. No. Exactly. They're not saying what we feel. They're they're projecting a false image, but they're not actually saying what's really going on inside of people.
3: Right. Which is which helped me and my friends so much because I said that was kind of like a relief valve for us. I could go like mm-hmm. if I was so frustrated with how I was being treated racially, man, just put in Chuck and Flav. and right. you were fine. right. <laughs> that yeah. just helped relieve some of that. Exactly. I I don't see that kind of outlet. Like I said, I think we took for granted Spike Lee and John Singleton, and man, we would. I mean, you—the day those movies dropped, we were there. Oh my god! Because they spoke so much to us.
2: Yes, you felt like you were at home, and like you could let your hair down and be you. Right.
3: Yeah. I think, and it was, and it was. Nobody had ever catered to us. I remember, I was in college. On a break, and the movie Crush Groove came out. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I ran home. I went back to Detroit opening night, and that movie was a movie I used to work at, Americana in Detroit, huge theater. Yeah. And I just remember we all just wanted to see someone like us on the screen. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was a perfect example. That night, there was this big pick, glass picture window at this theater. hmm. It broke out because so many people were pushing against it because we just wanted to get in and see these guys on this big screen that we yeah. that looked like us that that was speaking to what we were going through. Um, but yeah, you don't really see that outlet too much anymore.
2: Y'all gonna make me get uh, tonight? I'm going to go get watch me some old Spike Lee
0: movies. Watch, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pop a around here, man. You better. watch
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, Kevin, tell, tell our listening audience um, what they can expect from you next. Where can they find you? Where can they get in touch with you if they want to follow you or um, get any of your um, you know, benefits of your material?
3: OK, so just go to my website, which is my name, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N Hoffman. It's with one F and two N's, H-O-F M-A-N-N.com. There, you can see the book. You can see uh, some of the things I speak on, some of the podcasts I've done, and then I started because I do a lot of work with the diversity inclusion. Um, I just started designing these T-shirts, which I think say a lot. So one of the T-shirts, which I like, because I get this comment all the time, I don't, I don't see color. I'm colorblind.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So, so one of the shirts I have just says. Uh, if you don't see color, I must be invisible. Wow. So in, the of, in the middle of that t-shirt is a chalked out outline of somebody. Mm. Wow. Because it can get that serious because you don't choose to see color. Right. But it can cause lives to be lost. Well, i take uh, tell and then you on, the, on the back, it just says, see me, mm. just see me. There's nothing wrong with the fact that my skin has more melanin in it than yours. Exactly. It's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. So see fine, me fine. now. Don't, do you have any of those
0: in a four X? Because I think I'm going to get that particular shirt. I need to. Go.
3: <laughs>
0: I do too. I
2: want one too.
0: <laughs> I want one too because
3: I yeah, think get it with you. We just did a out. test run because I wasn't sure how well those would sell. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a top yeah, out really when like
2: People that. say that when they say yeah. they don't see color because yes, you, you know everybody wants to be seen. For exactly. who they are. I don't yes. want to be like you. I want to be like me, but I want you to accept me for who I am.
3: Right. right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong that I'm a person of color. That's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. Exactly. Yeah. Everywhere I go, <laughs> yeah, I, there are three things that always come up everywhere I go. I don't see color. How come we can't say the N word? And then what I get from black students and parents is I'm sick of people touching my hair <laughs> get everywhere I go. Wow. And, and what people don't realize and people get shocked when I say, OK, here's the hair thing. We have a history in this country of one group of people owning another. Yes. And part of ownership is you feel very comfortable picking up what's yours or yes. touching what's yours. Right. So although your child may not, th- may think it's this innocent act and you can't understand why we're so upset as parents, because your hands are on our children, that's where it comes from. Yes. Yeah. You, you, you know, it's just like, you know, when a woman's pregnant, this this crazy belief that I have every right to go up and touch her belly.
2: No. Oh, my God. Where did that yeah. come from? Yeah.
3: <laughs> Privilege. <laughs>
2: it was always my pet peeve, like perfect yeah. strangers in a store want to rub yeah. your stomach. And I'm like, I don't even yeah. let my children or my husband do that. Don't exactly,
3: do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you got on you. I don't want that on <laughs> exactly.
2: me. Exactly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to get the around here. I don't know what you right. do. Right.
0: You know, like, speaking, really, speaking exactly. juju
3: don't on my
0: baby corona. yourself what you talking about <laughs> <the> beer <laughs> <laughs> keep yeah. your hands to yourself yeah, exactly.
3: yeah that's what I just had that conversation at a meeting with the school I work with is that one mother couldn't handle that and I finally just had to say let's just keep our hands to ourselves is that a hard rule
0: yes yeah, okay.
2: I saw a little cute video last week. This little black girl, she had her hair braided and she had the little beads in it. And they her and um a little white girl was sitting next to her. And um, I think the teacher was taking her picture. She said, say cheese. So she was posing for the picture, and then the little white girl started pulling her hair, and she was like, <laughs> like, like, don't uh-oh. touch my hair. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. <laughs> She was only like three
3: years old. I was like, uh huh. see, it starts early. (laughs) It does. And so the other T-shirt I have on the front, and this is the old saying we used to do back in Detroit. When we would play basketball, you know, it was usually in the backyard where, you know, those houses were one right after the other. So we didn't have a whole lot of room. So oftentimes you'd be taking a basketball out against the fence or against a rose bush. You didn't have a whole lot of room. Right, right. So we came up with, it was the rule. It was called three feet. And I remember there was this kid uh, block over Max Mixon and he would, so he'd be taking the ball out. I'd be checking him and Max would yell out, give me three. And he'd only yell at once. And I had, you know, less than a second to move back and give him three feet. If I didn't, he was going to just fire me up with the basketball. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And so from that thought, When I go into schools and universities now, I say, look, we've got to create an environment where the kid with the Black Lives Matter T-shirt and the student with the Make America Great Again hat can coexist. Yeah, right. So how we do that is just give me three feet. This is my three feet. I own it. How I believe is never going to. It does nothing to do with your three feet. I'm going to keep my three feet here. You keep your three feet here. And until we're cool enough where we can talk about that stuff and we're in relationship, we, let's just not do it. You're never going to convince me to wear a red hat. I'm never going to convince you to wear a BLM T-shirt. That's mm-hmm. fine. My life can go on without that. I don't have to be committed to bring you over to my side to think how I think. But we've just got to respect each other's three feet. So just give me three feet. Right. And if you give me that three feet like I did max, we're good. If you don't give me that three feet, like Max did to me, if I didn't give him three feet, Mm -hmm. there's consequences and
2: repercussions. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question for you. I got a question for you. Mm -hmm. It seems that in years past, like the, the subject of race, religion and politics we we had boundaries for those uh, conversations those were conversations we only had you know behind closed doors or with friends and family but it seems to be now that people are having those conversations openly everywhere on the internet you know at the workplace so do you think that's what's causing such tension now
3: i think what's causing some tension now is that we have an administration who has said Hey, I'm going to do and say whatever I want to say. And I'm going to give you license to do and say the things that you wanted to say for the last 20 years. Hey, go ahead and say them. Because I'm saying them and I'm not really being called on. it. Wow. And I think that has said and all the statistics will show you that the hate crimes have gone up. All that stuff has gone up since this administration. Wow. So, yeah, I have never seen someone in that position that way where. Man, it was kind of just like, he was the one we looked to. And then it's frustrating, too, when you had a man who pretty much did that job perfectly.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, but he had to.
2: Yes, he because had Because
3: they were looking for any little thing to get him on. Yes. And I think that's the reason why we're dealing with what we're dealing with now is, you know, in politics, the pendulum swings. So yeah, yeah. those that don't think like I do have thought, Man, the pendulum's way over here because we got this black dude in office. We need to correct this thing. So then we end up with Trump. So, man, I hope and pray that we're bringing it back.
2: Obama's presidency just speaks to the historic nature of being a black person. Like, you have to be almost
3: perfect. Isn't that what we tell our kids? Yes, yeah, you have to be twice as good to be just as good.
2: Yes, you have to be, you have to do five times more as a white person just to be on their level.
3: Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, history will show that, that there was a man that, man, I don't know many people that could have navigated that like he did. I know. N- um, especially in this day and age with social media and all, I, there were people I'm convinced <laughs> their full-time job was just to find something on them.
2: And exactly, they never did. and they
3: never so that did. volumes. so I think that's why we're dealing with that. That they've been kind of, everyone's been given license, yeah. and then social media doesn't help. That now we're all experts on everything. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. So people, yeah, and and that's the thing that I found when I work in schools is that, yeah, my, the you know my kids were called things that I never was coming up. Wow. And there are words that are used today in schools that I thought we never used. We do, we stopped using. I thought we had enough sense, but no. No.
0: <laughs> They're still there. I was going to ask about yeah. that. So, I mean, do yeah. you dealing with a lot of the youth uh, now? Do you feel uh that things are changing for the better. Like there's more of a, an understanding and thing, you know, people are a little bit more tolerant of each other or, you know, as far as when it comes to race than it was maybe 20 years ago, or do you feel like there's almost been a reoccurrence of that hatred that we saw maybe 20, 30 years back in the, you know, in the past?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's much, much more volatile now. Um, social media mm. definitely plays into that uh yeah and and again i every day i i'm hearing what kids are saying to each other in between classes and it's not mm. it's not kind oh. and so we as adults and so the, the schools have a really hard time where they're like well we can't control what they say cuz their parents are horrible people uh-huh. <laughs> and, and i'm like well, yeah, but you can like kids know you knew i knew That if Mm -hmm. I went in to Mr. McGowan's history class as a sophomore at Benedictine High School in Detroit, Mr. Mm -hmm. McGowan was not playing with any of that stuff. So I didn't Mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. But then I could go out out into another class and that teacher didn't have control over us. So we did it in that class. So I I tell all the schools I work with, you have to set a standard on your campus, which is, uh uh-uh, we're not going to do this on this campus and send a very clear message. Kids will get it and they won't do it. Look, exactly.
2: Yeah, they they have to kids need boundaries and they need yep. consequences when they yep. cross those boundaries. And
0: that's right. simple as that. Parents yeah. too. Parents need yeah, boundaries too. Exactly. Well, right? well,
2: the parents, it starts with the parents. You can clearly see what goes on in-house when they, right. they act at the school.
0: Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of parents, they'll come up and say, you know, well, my child didn't do this, or blah, 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 you know. Hey, look. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll be like, I'll be quick to tell
2: them, I'm with your child longer than you are during the <laughs> right. day. Right, <Yeah. laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Kevin, I thank you so much for joining us. This was so awesome. I had so much fun.
0: Me too. Thank you. Oh yeah, it was awesome having you here. Yes, baby. yes. I, I, feel I am... to spit some bars before you go. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, do it. Ice, ice, baby.
2: <laughs> Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we
3: wrap up? No, it's just great to be here. It's it's very I'll be honest, very rarely do I get interviewed by other black people. So that's always oh, just wow. fabulous. Oh um, wow. Yeah.
1: You know?
3: <laughs> yeah so it's it's good because and I'll tell you, there's this there's this tension between the transracial community, so the community of white parents with black kids and the black community. Oh wow. Um, and there's been really? this interesting history between the two. Um so it means a lot when I can come before people of color, feel accepted, feel, you know, just part of the group. So that means a yeah. lot.
1: Definitely.
0: Well, well I love glad that. to have you here, man. We definitely appreciate you coming in and sharing your time with us. You know, yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. the words you spoke today. That was awesome,
3: man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm keep sure up the listener, good work. That's yeah. Fun.
2: My listeners are going to love this. And we're going to dub you the, yeah. the light-skinned Spike Lee. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. All right, dope discussion listeners. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of Dope Discussions as much as we did. Um, All
3: right, take care.
2: Dope Discussion listeners. I just want to thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Kevin Hoffman. Um, Again, I want to leave you with his information. You can get his book on Amazon and it's called Growing Up Black in White. I promise you, it's an awesome read. Um, I'm definitely going to pick up the book the parts that I read just sucked me in and made me want to read more. So definitely go to Amazon and pick up that book. You can also follow Kevin on YouTube. He has videos on YouTube um, detailing some of his training that he does with adoptive parents who are um, adopting, you know, biracial, transracial children. So you can also follow him on YouTube. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show until next time.